It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome to CityCast Denver. I'm Bree Davies, and you're listening to Mayoral Madness, our effort to get to know all 17 candidates who want to be Denver's next mayor. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Lisa Cadaron. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bree. I'm happy to be back. <laughs> oh, yeah, we've had you on before, right? Oh, my gosh. Welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> yes, a couple of times, a couple of times. So, And, and I think the first time was with Paul in... Um, the pizza, the pizza show. It wasn't CityCast then, oh. but our favorite pizza when we were running as candidates. And uh, I, I went to Pizza Alley because that was my teenage hangout spot. It's one of those Northside strip mall gems. That's right. I love That's it. Still there. Still there. Well, you know, you've been campaigning now for a while and you have been all over the city. I wonder if there is a new place or something new to you that you love in Denver right now. Oh, well, I I haven't been campaigning that long, actually. Um, it's just been since October. And a new place actually is a place I just went to the other night that I had no idea. It's called the um, Bao Brew House, B-A-O. And um, it was phenomenal. The food was great. It's downtown off of 14th and Larimer. And yeah, I encourage folks to go and I'm even considering going back for my birthday. So that actually is a perfect lead into my question about downtown. So you went to a new restaurant down there. Larimer Square's new owners seem to be clearing out longtime tenants. And the Downtown Denver Partnership is gearing up for another round of its free rent pop-up retail program. I wonder, what would you do as mayor to continue to bring that life back to downtown? Well, I uh, was a student at Metro State University. Um, back then it was college years ago. And we used to hang out in Larimer Square. So we have the Tivoli um, that eventually became the student union, but then we also had Larimer Square. And so we had the the eateries and all of that. So even then Larimer Square was a little bit pricey, but there were places that were still affordable for students. I mean, it's changed so much. And I, you know, I just think anything that we can do to get um, uh, small BIPOC business owners, the exposure that they often don't get in those more upscale um, areas, I think we should be doing. You know, I'm not someone who's afraid to go downtown. I don't understand this doomsday scenario that gets painted by some of the candidates. I'm as comfortable walking downtown as I am in Cole neighborhood, which is right outside of Five Points, and walking down the street to Five Points. So, you know, this is part of what makes our community rich is all of these different people, all of these different experiences. But definitely we need to be doing more for our small folks of color, business owners in downtown. So it's a diversity of businesses and, and cultural diversity as well as economic diversity. Um, but I, I think also what you're saying is you're not afraid of downtown and you don't, what do you, what do you think is happening there that's, that's making people think or, or feel that? I mean, I know there's real valid concerns, but like what, what, what gets you to walk around downtown? 
Well, I'm fourth fourth generation Denverite, so this is home for me. I remember downtown, which was like a cow town, um, and we're not that anymore. Where there were, the stores were shut, there was nothing happening on Sundays. Um, it was really like a ghost town. My, you know, some of my first jobs were also downtown. Joslyn's. Um, I was worked the counter at customer service, wrapping presents. I have horrible wrapping skills, but anyway, they wanted me for that. But it was a great stepping stone. Like if you wanted to work as a young person, there were lots of jobs downtown that you could go be a part of the hustle and bustle after the 16th Street Mall came in, especially. Um, it was just, you know, phenomenal. And so I understand when people say, you know, we miss that, that downtown. I remember when, you know, the pavilions went in and the movie theaters and all of that, that was great buzz. Um, but people tend to blame the problems we have downtown on unhoused people instead of the wealth disparity that we have there, the lack of infrastructure for uh, affordable housing. So people are downtown uh, oftentimes because that's where to be close to services, but they also want to be where things are happening. So, you know, I have not given up at all on downtown. I see it as a more residential place. Uh, When we expand the tree canopy, places for green space. Um, you know, some candidates are talking about retrofitting buildings. That's not a new idea. Uh, homeless rights activists, they've been talking about that for a long time. They've been talking about uh, that there's more luxury housing than there is um, affordable housing and also luxury housing being available and open and people not living there and our buildings not being full. These are conversations we've had for a long time. So when I hear candidates make it seem like it's their idea. It's not. Uh, what we need is a mayor that's going to implement the solutions that are already in our communities. So you think the the idea that you said that has been going on for a long time of retrofitting office buildings as housing is is something Denver could do? Yes. I mean, the, you know, the groups like um, Downtown Denver Partnership, we got a survey to candidates about how we're going to revitalize downtown. And we have to stop thinking about it as just a business destination or a tourist destination. But really, you know, these are places where people can live, uh, you know, vibrant lives and you don't have to be um, upper income to be able to do that. Um, You know, at, at one point, the downtown income was over a hundred thousand on average. Uh, and people are also now, you know, they're moving in, but they're afraid of other people around them. There is an excellent program called Broadway Housing in New York. And they basically retrofitted a building. The basement is an art space. The first floor is a school. In between our housing, including people with mental illness who are in normalized housing with everyday residents. And then on the top floor is office space for, you know, the staff who are former residents as well. So there are these models uh, that we could have been looking to for a long time that I really look forward to implementing as mayor. So, Lisa, you ran in the 2019 mayoral election, um, which was quite a different landscape when it came to candidates. I mean, notably, you were running against the incumbent, uh, Mayor Hancock, who ultimately won. What are you doing differently this time? Well, it makes such a difference when you know what you're doing (laughs) as opposed to the first time. You know really what to worry about that. And um, you know that uh, being running part of Kaylin's campaign uh, back in the day. And 
What was interesting about that is that there was also a cohort of us who are also running who believed in the same things in terms of equity and, and access and all of that. Um, but I also ran that first time because I couldn't get anyone else to run that, you know, I felt like had a really great shot at unseating Hancock. We even tried to get Debbie Ortega to run. And so back then it's like, listen, you know, you could win this if you actually, you know, took him on. And, you know, that's that wasn't what she wanted to do back then. She wanted to do, you know, four more years as a councilwoman. But it was actually good that she didn't because, you know, we were able to see four years forward that there weren't a whole lot of transformational policies that have come out of city council. And so now we have we are able to do a fresh look. And I'm less like, actually, we need fresh voices. Uh, and that's what's different for me is that I haven't been in city council um, or in city government for decades. I did two years working as councilwoman, say the Baca's chief of staff. Um, and uh, that was enough to give me insight of the dysfunction of the city, the incrementalism uh, that we seem to be tied to or they seem to be tied to. There weren't there wasn't a lot of big, bold moves. And after 12 years under a Hancock administration, you know, it feels like a cloud is lifting and there's all kinds of new possibilities. So I'm actually glad to like bring that energy, that insight and that and those progressive values to the forefront in this race. And I want to just clarify for listeners, Debbie Ortega is act- is running for mayor now. It's interesting to me because you're talking about sort of how there it seems like sometimes city government can move at an, an incremental pace. But Debbie's somebody who's been in council and in government for over 40 years. What makes you the candidate, the better candidate? This fundamentally is a race between the past and the future. And why I jumped in is I actually jumped in relatively late. So it was in October, not that long ago. And I was really waiting for a candidate who would reflect those progressive values. And what I saw instead was a lineup of people who were going to the same types of political machine uh, players. And I'm like, we're not actually fundamentally changing our government, if we are going to the same power players who have been pulling the puppet strings all this time, and not even just since the Hancock years, even before that in the Hickenlooper years. So I just thought there's not going to be a real change. We're going to change seats and you'll have a different person, but it's still the same political machinery behind the scenes. And I just thought, you know what, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to be beholden to any kingmakers or the same corporate lobbyists who have been running the city. We need a fresh start. And that's why I jumped in. So your website lists transformational transportation as part of your platform. And I realize I don't know if I've heard you talk about transportation before. Could you explain what you mean when you say transformational transportation? I didn't start driving until I was 21 years old. And part of that was I didn't have a car. I didn't have access to a car. And um, and so I rode the bus everywhere. And even when I became a single parent and a student at Metro State, I rode the bus. I had to ride the bus to get groceries and I had a child and I had a stroller and all of that. And I know how what a lifeline public transportation uh, was and is. 
you know, fast forwarding to to now, it really jumped off with a tweet when I said, you know, I love riding my bike. I, you know, Colorado has one of the best trail systems, including Denver, and I'm terrified to ride on Denver streets. And so I realized how much I restricted myself because of the safety issues in my own uh, community, in my own neighborhood. And that opened up a big conversation to to be able to explore, like, what would it look like differently? We are a very much car centric city. We were intentionally built that way. Um, And I had heard that we had an opportunity to build out a very robust rail system when the airport was built. But because they wanted the parking revenue, they really killed that idea. I also remember when light rail was put in at, on Welton Street against the wishes of the black uh, business owners that said, hey, you didn't even talk to us. <clears throat> and now you're killing our business. You know, I always remember that that we on the one hand, how great it is to be able to go to a city where you can just hop on a train, hop on a bus. They ran frequently. And then in Denver, how difficult that was to do and how it lacked engagement with the community. So that was one piece of it. The other piece of it is I was part of the group that sparked the decriminalizing jaywalking effort. And again, it was part of this conversation about, hey, people want uh, better sidewalks, but there are some parts in Denver that don't even have sidewalks and they have to walk in the street. And then they also risk being ticketed because of it. And we have those places such as in areas of District 9 where I live. And we can you know, look at various parts of neighborhoods that the lack of walkability and so, you know, I want to be the first to say this isn't my idea. So, again, once candidates say, you know, I created the first buffered street zone, you know, lane, whatever, that was a coalition effort among people that took a lot of planning and diligence among um, bike activists and often born out of tragedy, out of having friends hit or killed. And so I wanted to be part of that conversation from my own perspective of feeling unsafe. So I absolutely believe we should have thoroughfares across the city that are just open to bikes. The One of the reasons I love riding trails is I don't have to look over my shoulder for a bike. And that sense of freedom is really important, but also just as a way of life, we should be able to have greater connectivity across the city so that if we want to ride with our children and we want to grocery shop and be able to load up our bikes, we have ways to be able to do that. Um, I'm also sensitive to the accessibility needs uh, as well of people saying, you know, I don't have a garage. I don't have the privilege of having a garage and being able to park in front of my home is also important. I think we should be able to incentivize people to um, not drive cars and to make space maybe on their property to park their vehicle instead of on the street. Um, but we haven't been able to explore those possibilities. Um, and I, I love the high comfort bike lanes. I went on a tour uh, with a couple of folks. Uh, the Denver um, Bicycle Lobby are great and, and Shared Streets Partnership. You know, it's so freeing to just be able to get on a bike and go but we don't have that luxury here in Denver. And I want to be a part of making that happen and scaling that up rapidly. So you mentioned sort of closing streets and I'm thinking about ideally, oh, that was wonderful. We did it during the pandemic. We saw how great it was. And I know transit advocates were frustrated that the city kind of just went back to normal after that. But I'm also thinking about, 
You mentioned that Denver is built for the car, which means a lot of folks drive. What would it look like to close? Like, is there a street you could, if there, if you had like a big dream, what would be the street you could close? Because I'm also thinking about the high injury network, right? I, I live at Alameda and Federal, one of the most dangerous intersections in the city. I, you couldn't close it. Like what, what would, what would you do there? So I think of um, streets like 13th, 14th, 12th Avenue, et cetera, where you trying to get a car and a bike and, and if traffic is going on both directions, everybody is like squeezing through. So looking at streets like that, the Vamos network, they've already put thought into this. So, you know, I don't have to come up with new ideas. They've already done the research about this is what it would look like. Um, I also want to make a point, though, about community engagement, because this is where I get into back and forth with people on Twitter. And like you didn't you weren't for closing City Park. And I'm like, let's take a step back. I actually am for closing City Park to traffic with some exception. And that exception was access to the Martin Luther King statue. Because what we heard from black elders is that they put in their time, their blood, their tears, and they want to be able to access that park like they've always done before gentrification and displacement took off into um, that uh, that memorial. And so that's what I'm talking about is that you know, these issues are complicated. And when we oversimplify them, to me is when we get into trouble, especially with community engagement. So I actually believe we need to have a community engagement office um, rather than relying on like the city planner or the parks people to conduct community engagement, because those are different skill sets, right? To create plans and to be a visionary in that way, that's a different skill set than knowing how to talk to uh, people from various backgrounds and communities. You know, there was also this confusion when the when bollards go up, like in five points. And I'm like, hey, I'm all for slowing traffic down, having bike lanes. But when you didn't talk to the black business owners, for example, who are already feeling pushed out, that's a problem. So just having that conversation, like we're trying to create safety for everybody and not just for a certain group of people, because for some people, seeing, um, you know, safe uh, bike lanes going in is a sign of gentrification, when in actuality, all of us could benefit from that. But it takes conversation and education for people to connect the, the dots and see themselves in those solutions. So you're a graduate of North High School and DPS is struggling right now with declining enrollment, pandemic related learning concerns and a school board that's been in the news quite a bit, especially around Superintendent Marrero's failed proposal to close 10 schools back in December. I know that the mayor's office doesn't necessarily oversee DPS, but I'm curious from your perspective as someone running for mayor, what is your stance on the prospect of school closures? As you said, I am a graduate of DPS. So are my children. So were, were my my parents. DPS has always struggled. So that's one thing. Public education has always struggled. And, uh, and that has a lot to do with wealth inequity and how we fund our schools. It has to do with racial inequity. So the fact that, you know, with the Keys decision in Denver, we had to actually sue people to, you know, dismantle, legalize segregation. 
Um, so these are not new problems. I think closing schools is always problematic because it says something has failed in our system. And when you close a school, it destabilizes a community. Our schools are more than just for those students. It is, they're also community hubs. And, you know, having said that, you know, you can't have a half empty school or a school with just a few classrooms, but that's also an opportunity And like the example that I gave with Broadway housing, where there was a school on one floor and then housing on the top, that's how I would think of re-envisioning our schools, is that we keep the community hubs, we keep centers of learning, but we also have housing that goes with them. So I just think that the conversation has been so binary, it's been difficult to really see a way through. And also, there are some candidates who want to take over DPS administration and the school board. And my pushback to them is stay in your lane. We already had that. We tried it. We had Happy Haynes, who served both on the school board and as the um, director of Parks and Recreation. That's a power grab. And instead, we need to say we need to be better partners with DPS there are there is accountability to the city and vice versa because that's our future workforce. But how can we support? How can we create more internships and mentorship uh, possibilities? Um, how can we look at our our land use since DPS you know has more land? Uh, uh, like let's figure out how to partner with those instead of trying to control. To me, that's a colonialist mindset. And instead, I want to be much much more collaborative with our public school system. So I want to switch to a listener question. Jessica W. writes, quote, the shortage of police officers combined with continued population growth is leading to increased violent crime in the city. How do you plan to address police recruiting and or reform as the city's leader? I don't equate um, the lack of police with more crime, you know, and I'm speaking as a criminal justice professor. I'm speaking as someone who ran the city's reentry program in Denver's jails for eight years and speaking from a uh, as a former legal director for an abused women's program. So most crime, especially interpersonal crime, is not reported to the police. And what we know from research is that when you address those root causes of shaky unemployment status, um, being underemployed, having a lack of access to drug or alcohol treatment, you're exposed more to discrimination. And all of those things are stressors and they're not excuses, but we have to understand from a public health perspective, what is driving crime? And, you know, you can have more police officers uh, that has not been proven to reduce crime. Uh, What it has proven is it has expanded Uh, policing. I mean, that is the area. It comprises almost 40% of the general fund budget compared to housing, which is about 4%. We invest in what we value as a city. And so all of us want more safety. We all want to live in safer communities and safer homes. And we need to be able to give our community folks the resources, expand social safety nets to be able to do that. I'm also wondering, though, um, I'm thinking about this listener's question and and would you 
what what is your stance on DPD then? Would you reduce? We know that public safety takes up a large part of the city's budget. Would you reduce DPD's budget? What I would not do is expand it. <laughs> it's hard to reduce something that's already been passed, and that was you know this mayor made sure that. DPD got, you know, their raises and they, you know, they put in more money to hire 188 officers. Imagine if we said we have that same kind of commitment to hiring 188 social workers and 188 librarians and et cetera. But we that's not what gets prioritized. And, you know, I have been a long time uh, police accountability uh, organizer and activist stemming from my son being assaulted at 15 years old by Denver police officers walking home from school and have been instrumental with a lot of other community activists to have a strong independent monitor's office that came out of the tragedy of Paul Childs, a 15-year-old disabled um, black boy in Park Hill being killed by a Denver police officer. So, you know, I have a long history of, of that and police accountability. But what I also have a long history of is training law enforcement officers. I've done it for 20 years. And whether it was on um, gender um, trauma-informed issues regarding gender or, you know, racial and cultural issues and through that lens, I have worked with law enforcement officers to be better at their jobs and wanting to solve the same kind of problems of creating safety with communities. Unfortunately, we are beyond reform. Hmm. We've talked about training ad nauseum. I've helped write those protocols. I've been on use of force policies. Nothing has changed two years past George Floyd when we actually have more uh, people killed by law enforcement nationally than before George Floyd was murdered. So we have to really look fundamentally at transforming our police department. And so I would look for a police chief who is a visionary. I would also uh, not want to preclude ha having a woman of uh, the first woman police chief uh, or first woman sheriff. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of room, but first and foremost, I would ask the community, what do they want to see and have them part of that hiring process? So if you you got the job as mayor and you got to set that budget, I, I would be curious, would you would you reduce it for police? I would not reduce it at this point because it's already been passed. What I would do is I would look for cost savings. So, for example, I would replace the street enforcement team that is currently sweeping unhoused people with a crisis intervention team. And I would not put that budget under public safety, which is where the street enforcement team is. I would put it under our Denver Human Services or our public health agency. And so when we look at reducing, I actually look at cost savings. So we would not need a street enforcement team anymore because we are having, we're shifting our priorities to a more effective strategy. Okay, I'm going to ask you two more questions. One is just for fun. Becoming mayor, it comes with special privileges. And I think you could call up anyone in the city and get to know them over lunch. Is there a local celebrity you would want to break bread with? Like Dylan Doug, John Elway, Adele Arakawa? <laughs> who's, on, who's on your list of famous Denver people? Well, I don't really have a list of famous Denver people. What I have is um, I would invite uh, the indigenous community into the mayor's office. First of all, I would ask my indigenous sisters um, and elders um, 
uh, permission if they would smudge the mayor's office because there has been a lot of dirt done in that office. And so I would want to start fresh from a very grounded uh, place, but also I'd want to center uh, the indigenous community because they tend to get overlooked in the conversations about Denver. We have some phenomenal indigenous leaders who never have been invited to the mayor's office. And I want to make sure that we actually have uh, at least one indigenous leader in the mayor's cabinet. So when I think of famous people or people that I go to or I want to sit down with, those are the types of people that I think about. Who would be that person? I'm sorry? Who, who would be that person for you? Um, well, we have, um, for example, um, Jennifer Wolf. She owns a small business um, that does consulting around Native issues, has uh, technical assistance and is a supporter of mine. And I just love her. She's been a mentor to my daughter as well. But she's also a connector uh, in the urban Indian community, uh, which is actually a very, very vibrant and, and a crossroads for business. Some people don't know that uh, the Spire uh, building downtown um, was owned by a native tribe. I think they, I think they still do. But um, and also the old Villa Italia. I'm dating myself, but now Belmar, and that's uh, out. It's outside of Denver, also owned by a native tribe. So um, we we can make those cultural connections, but those people need to be made visible. So last question: I am looking to hear a vision for Denver that I can get on board with. What is the next era of Denver to you, Lisa? Well, my slogan is reimagine Denver, and I want to reimagine Denver that makes life easier for people, that brings them joy. I've been studying Finland a lot and their models about one being the happiest country, but how they define happiness isn't the euphoric happiness we might think of. It really is being satisfied with your quality of life, having positive social connections, uh, being surrounded with green space and uh, access to um, walking and biking and activities. So basically those things that really make you feel part of a village uh, where you know your neighbors and you know your community. And so when I reimagine Denver, it isn't the big skyscrapers and the sprawl. It really is about, you know, what will it take to make your life better? That when you go outside of your door, you are happy to be in the city of Denver. And that's going to be different for different people. Um, but there are some common things that we can all agree on, including community safety and clean air and water and green space and connect connectivity um, are all the things that I'll be focusing on as mayor. Where can people go to learn more about you and your campaign? Funny you should ask that. I, I knew we needed some uh, clarification here. <laughs> we had a story in the Denver, right, that our old website is being held hostage. And it is. Uh, for $9,000, um, someone bought my old website. And it's a long website name, so I'm not going to repeat it. Because I want people to go to our new website, which is very simple. And it's lisafordenver.com. That's F-O-R, lisafordenver.com. And that's our new website. It's beautiful, created by Jesse Broom. And, you know, you can go there, donate, sign up. And this is the last month for the Fair Elections Fund match. I am a Fair Elections Fund candidate. 
And that fund was passed by Denver voters to help grassroots candidates like me. Just about everyone's taking advantage of it, including the very well-connected, which is fine because we also have more people running for office and gives people more options. And so even if people give $5, it is matched nine times. So that $5 actually then turns into $50. And the $50 is a maximum match. So that turns into $500. So I am very proud to be the most, um, have the most uh, low dollar donations of the most competitive candidates. And we intentionally went after low income donors because we want them to feel like they are investors in our campaign, in the mayor's race, some of them for the very first time. So if you can just give $5, I will take it. And the cap is $500. I will take that too. Dr. Lisa Calderon, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Bree. It's been a pleasure. And um, Paul, great seeing you again. We're going to have to have pizza again sometime for old time's sake. <laughs> he loves pizza, still loves pizza. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this episode of Mayoral Madness. What we hope is a 17-part interview series with all the candidates on the ballot to be Denver's next mayor. We're planning to publish these interviews each week leading up to Election Day on April 4th, and we'll be providing more news and analysis during the week. Subscribe to CityCast Denver and learn more about Mayoral Madness at denver.citycast.fm. We'll be back soon with even more mayoral candidates who want to lead the city.